0: So we thank you, Father, that all of our needs are met according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We thank you, Father, for spectacular increase in these last days so that we can do the work Jesus has for us before he returns. We love you, Father, and we thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. the Lord. Let's start tonight in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We've been teaching for the last uh, several weeks on manifestations of the Spirit, and I want to go a little bit further with that tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Paul speaking by the Holy Ghost said, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away into these dumb idols, even as you were led. Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, And that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Now there are diversities of gifts but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations but it's the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom. To another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the self-same Spirit dividing to every man severally as he will. Now, if we back up to verse 1, and I think I, I make this comment every time that I read this scripture If you'll notice in the the King James translation, the word gifts is in italics. That means whenever you see a word in italics in the King James, that means the translators added that word trying to help us in our understanding. And I think they did a pretty good job with this one. But uh, for me, it always helps to go back and remind myself of what the original language, the original Greek actually says. The word spiritual is in the plural in the original Greek. Now, so if it was translated uh, literally, it would be now concerning spirituals, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Well, nobody knows what that means, so that wouldn't really help us much. But the word spirituals means things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. So the the accurate, most correct translation of this verse is where Paul says, by the Holy Ghost, wherefore, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. I'm sorry, I missed it entirely. Let me start over. Where he says, now concerning spirituals, things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. God doesn't want us ignorant of the things concerning the Holy Ghost. But folks, i got to tell you, for me personally, I hope it's not the same for you, but for me personally, this is probably the area of greatest ignorance that I have in the things of God. It's not that I don't want to know. The simple fact is I just don't have a whole lot of experience with these manifestations of the Spirit. I can study, I can read, I can tell you other people's experiences and other people's stories. We can refer back to the things in the Old Testament where we see some of these manifestations as well. But I just don't have a lot of experience with them. But one thing that I found out is you learn more when you preach and teach on it. So whether you get anything out of this or not, I'm expecting God to teach me. So you're just listening in to God telling me and teaching me things. Now, concerning things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost, God does not want us to be ignorant. Now, notice the first thing that He says. The first thing that He says to bring us understanding, verse 2 You know that you were Gentiles carried away under these dumb idols, even as you were led. Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. These were things that were taking place in their services. We know in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, verse 7 I believe it is, where Paul said, you come behind in no good gift. Other translations expand on that a little bit. Paul is saying, you've got everything, every manifestation, every work of the Holy Spirit operating in the church at Corinth. So they had the list of these nine manifestations all working in their churches and in their people and, and in their congregations. Now of these things, he gives us a list of nine things. Of these nine manifestations of the Spirit, you can find all but two of them in the Old Testament. The two that are distinctive uh, for the church age are diverse kinds of tongues and interpretation of tongues. And he spends more time talking about tongues and interpretation of tongues and prophecy in chapter 14 than he does any of the other manifestations of the Holy Ghost. So here's Paul Inspired by the Holy Ghost. And the first thing that he tells them is that when the Holy Ghost is in manifestation, he'll always point to Jesus. Apparently what was taking place in some of their services is the people, as they were accustomed to during idol worship, going into the temples of these false gods and so forth, and nearly all of them were uh, connected with either strong drink or and or uh, drugs, hallucinogenic drugs and things like that. And so many times these priests of these idols, these false gods, would get drugged up on something and, and turn, themselves over to the whole, to, uh, turn themselves over to demonic spirits. And they would prophesy. They would speak. And the people recognized that it was supernatural what was taking place. They just didn't know the difference between what was right and what was wrong. So the first thing that Paul has to describe to them and identify for them Is that when the Holy Ghost is in manifestation. No matter what other manifestations you hear. No matter what other manifestations you see. But when the Holy Ghost is in manifestation. He always draws attention to Jesus. As being Lord and Savior. See they were used to the supernatural. The reason they were used to the supernatural. Is because they had all of these false gods. And temples to uh, different gods. And so forth. You may remember that in Jesus' day. At Caesarea Philippi. He was at a certain place. There's still a historical evidence, uh, an abundance of historical evidence, that show us in the ruins, the archaeological ruins, are uh, are a testament to, to the truth of this, that they had one place where they had just temple after temple after temple, and they weren't buildings like we're accustomed to or we might think when we say temple, but they were more like the little kiosk things that uh, that you might see at the mall except these were carved into the side of the mountain. And they would have little frescoes or, or uh, I don't know what you'd call it, but, but places where idols would be placed and adorned and, and so forth. And people very often just went from one to the other, going down the row in the, the line of all these false gods and temples and idols and so forth, offering sacrifices to each one. I guess the idea was if you covered your bases and offered a sacrifice to every god that there was, then you'd have to turn out all right. Well, that doesn't work with God. If you're worshiping anything but him, it doesn't count. And so when Paul starts talking about the supernatural aspect of idol worship and some of the things that they might be accustomed to, apparently during their services when the Holy Ghost would be in manifestation, something would take place or be taking place on one side of the service, and then one of these uh, false priests for these idols i'm not sure what else to call them but they would begin to speak out so you got one person magnifying jesus by the holy ghost you got somebody else saying jesus is accursed well you can well imagine that that would bring a little bit of confusion to your service and so the first thing paul tells them the first thing he wants them to to be sure of concerning their newfound knowledge of the holy ghost and his manifestations is that when the holy ghost is in manifestation anything the holy ghost does will always point to jesus It will always magnify Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so he follows up principle of priority number one is that the Holy Ghost will always magnify Jesus. And then he tells them there are diversities of gifts but the same Spirit. The Holy Ghost will manifest himself in, in a variety of ways in other words. And there are differences of administrations but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations but it's the same God which worketh all in all. So he's saying God has different things that he will administrate as the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. There are different operations that will take place in the ministry of the Holy Ghost as well. And then he goes through and he tells us all of these are are, uh, manifestations of the Spirit that are given to every man to profit withal. And then he gives us a list of nine things. Now, as I said, these nine different manifestations of the Holy Ghost, seven of them are identified in the Old Testament. The only two that are distinctive for the church age is diverse kinds of tongues and interpretation of tongues. And that's why Paul spends so much time in chapter 14 talking about prophecy, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Because those are the ones that they have the least amount of knowledge. They may have a lot of experience with it, but the least amount of knowledge apparently, because they don't know what the Holy Ghost will do or won't do when he begins to manifest himself and speak through others. So Paul makes sure to tell him again, it's priority number one, that when the Holy Ghost is in manifestation in any way, in every way, it'll always point to Jesus and magnify him. Now I've got a question for you folks. I want you to think this through with me a little bit. Here's Paul talking about these manifestations of the Spirit, seven of the nine of them, We have examples in the Old Testament. How did Paul learn what to call them? You can't find anything in the law of Moses that identifies or speaks to the word of wisdom. Or the word of knowledge. Or discerning of spirits. Or of special faith. Or of working of miracles. Or of gifts of healings. The only thing that the Old Testament refers to is prophecy. And again, that's one reason why Paul spent so much time talking about prophecy under the new covenant. Because prophecy under the new covenant was different than the prophecy they were used to under the law of Moses. And throughout the, the, the time where the old covenant was in effect. And as we've said before, many of these manifestations of the Spirit work hand in hand. But let me give you an example of uh, the things that the people were used to. Actually, I should say that what the Jews were used to. Of course, the Gentiles... Many of the people that make up the, the Gentile church in, in uh, Corinth, they don't know anything about the Old Testament anyway. But I want you to turn back with me to, to Exodus chapter 3. We'll start in verse 1. Moses has fled from Egypt after killing the Egyptian, and he, becomes, uh, he marries a wife. And he's keeping the flock of his father-in-law. Verse 1, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. Now, as we read some of these things, we might stop and identify different manifestations of the Spirit that we see. Now, let me say this as well. Under the old covenant, there wasn't a lot of... Emphasis placed on the designation or distinction between God the Father, Jesus, and, and or the Holy Ghost. It was more spoken of as just the Lord or God. But we come over to the New Testament and we see that there is a very uh, specific distinction that was made. Jesus drew attention to the sti- distinction between God the Father himself and then the Holy Ghost. And we have several examples when all three were, in, were present and carrying out a certain work for example when jesus was baptized by john in the jordan river you may remember that the bible says there was a voice that came out of heaven and said this is my beloved son in whom i'm well pleased and then the holy ghost descended upon jesus as a dove or as a bird would fly down from the sky and landed on him and stayed Apparently, the Holy Ghost manifested himself in such a way that he he came down from heaven in a physical way, some kind of visible manner, which the people could identify, landed on Jesus and, if you will, absorbed into his body. So you've got all three of the Godhead, the Trinity, in operation or in manifestation at one time. God the Father who speaks, Jesus, the Son of God here on the earth and in the Holy Ghost that manifests himself and lands on him and remains. So in the Old Testament, there were a more generalized, there was more of a generalized operation of God. But Jesus spent a lot of time talking about the fact that he wasn't the one that was doing the works or the miracles. Doesn't mean he didn't have anything to do with it. It means he wasn't the originating or, or the the, uh, the power source for the things and the miracles that were done, the healings and the miracles that were done. And the reason for that is because the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2. That Jesus emptied himself of the heavenly power and glory he had with the Father before he came to the earth. He didn't come to the earth as the Son of God in power. He laid aside his heavenly power and glory and didn't have any power to operate on other than the power of the Holy Ghost that came on him uh, when he was baptized in the Jordan River like we just talked about. He operated, in other words, with man's anointing. The Son of Man's anointing rather than his original power and glory. Now, another thing that we know that kind of adds to that is that Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane just before he was taken captive and led away to his crucifixion. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. And one of the things he prayed about is he said, Father, give me back the glory I had with you before the world was. Well, doesn't that indicate that he didn't have all the power that he once had? If he still had the power that he had as co-equal and co-eternal part of the Trinity, what he had with the father before the creations of the world then why would he be asking for God to give that back to it when he fulfilled the work that he had to do on the cross and we also see statements like Romans chapter 8 and verse 11 where it says if the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you then he will quicken your mortal bodies that tells us right away that God carried out his plan of redemption Jesus fulfilling his redemptive plan, but the power that raised him was the power of the Holy Ghost. It wasn't the power of the Father, it was the power of the Holy Ghost. And so the Bible in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, the Bible makes some pretty clear distinctions between the work of the Father and the work of the Son and the work of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that's one reason, maybe the main reason, why Paul said, by the Holy Ghost, in other words, it's the Holy Ghost saying through Paul, that he didn't want the church as ignorant about himself, concerning himself, the Holy Spirit. So when we see things in the Old Testament that we can identify as manifestations of the Spirit, maybe through the lack of knowledge of the people or maybe just for the sake of not being the right time, we see a lot of things that are overlooked that we can categorize because of what we know about the Holy Ghost now, what we've learned about the Holy Ghost through the New Testament but that they might not have known at the time. So here it tells us that Moses saw a burning bush. And it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a burning bush. That has to be discerning of spirits. Discerning of spirits is divine revelation into the spirit realm. Notice the, the manifestation of the spirit is not discerning of devils. A lot of people think that discerning of spirits or seeing into the spirit realm is all about seeing what the devils doing. But folks the Bible speaks... Of ten times more examples, gives us ten times more examples of seeing into the spirit realm where angels are doing the will and the plan and the purpose of God, carrying his plan out, his will out, than it does telling us about what to saw about the devil. But you get a lot of people nowadays who perhaps sincerely want to be used of God but just without knowledge. And everything they think is a manifestation of the Holy Ghost points to the devil and doom and gloom and the de- destruction and tragedy and so forth. So the first thing that we see with Moses is discerning of spirits. God manifested himself to it. Now whether he's seeing into the spirit realm or God is manifesting himself in the physical realm, either way he's discerning spirits. I'm not sure exactly how that worked. Whether Moses was able to see into the spirit realm, on, at least on occasion it would seem to be True. Or there might have been a miracle working of God where he just manifested himself and appeared in the physical realm so that Moses could see him with his physical eye. I'm not sure which way it is, but either way he's being made aware in, and uh, of the, the spirit realm because God's revealing it to him. So let's pick up in verse 2 again. The angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight Why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. In other words, don't come any closer, but put off the shoes from off your feet, for this place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. There's something about these scriptures that seem, and I, I I hope I'm not, certainly hope I'm not misreading or misinterpreting the scripture. And I don't mean to say it in a casual way and miss out on respecting or giving the respect to God that we should in this case, but it almost seems like if Moses hadn't stopped to look, God wouldn't have used him. When Moses said, I will stop and turn aside and see this thing. That's when God calls out to it. It must have been something that was a product of his desire, or at least it seems to me to be. It was something that was a product of Moses' desire. Verse 7 And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of that land into a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hevites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Now folks, this is a manifestation of the word of wisdom. God is revealing to Moses and has revealed through these uh, uh, these scriptures, these things that he says. He reveals to Moses his plan and his purpose. And notice God's plan and purpose oftentimes has to do with what he will do in the future. In the Old Testament, it was forth telling. Now, a lot of times people think that prophecy is all about telling the future. But remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul says, That the the simple gift of prophecy is given unto men to exhortation, edification, and comfort. He doesn't talk about any foretelling, any prediction of the future. Now the word of wisdom is the same in the Old Testament as as it is in the New Testament. And oftentimes these manifestations will work together. I want you to see several of them working together even so far. We've got the discerning of spirits and now the word of wisdom where God's revealed to Moses what his plan and his purpose for Israel is. Let's see some more. Come now therefore and I will send thee unto Pharaoh. This is still word of wisdom. He's telling, God's telling him what his plan is. Come now therefore and I will send thee unto Pharaoh. That thou mayest bring forth my people. The children of Israel out of Egypt. And Moses said unto God. Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh. And that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he said certainly I will be with thee. And this shall be a token unto thee. That I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and they shall say unto them, or and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say unto me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? I want you to notice, folks, the children of Israel, this is, uh, Moses is the one that gives them the law, and that won't come for some time now, from this point where, where the story begins. But they don't have any rituals or any sacrifices or any things, any God-given ways to sacrifice or to worship God. They don't know who God is. And that's Moses' first thing. He says, okay, well, you've identified yourself to me as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But who are you? And when the people ask me who you are, what am I going to tell them? God has to reintroduce himself to Israel And, folks, that's one of the, the, the main reasons why the plagues are so important, why God brings the ten plagues or really nine plagues in the angel of death unto Egypt to show them. He's showing his own people, not just showing himself to Pharaoh. He's showing and identifying himself to his own people. They don't know. They don't even have records of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The stories that we know of concerning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob come from the book of Genesis. And Moses is the one that is instructed by God and given the words to write down that provides them that information. They don't even know anything about their own history. They don't know anything. They're a blank slate. And as such, God reveals himself to them in great, great power. Did you notice earlier, we skipped over it and didn't uh, pay attention to it much, but did you notice where he said that his plan was to bring Israel into a land of milk and honey? It talks about the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and all those other guys. Those are the people that some years later, Israel, the, 12, the 10 spies that go in, 10 of the 12 spies that go into Israel, they're the ones that the, uh, the, the 10 spies are going to say, we can't take the land because of these people that are there. Well, God knew that in the beginning and it didn't bother him any. And Moses relates it to the people several times as a matter of fact. And yet when they get there and see the cities with walls around them, they're afraid and act like we didn't know anybody was here. Well, Moses questioned, what shall I say unto him? What shall I say your name is? Verse 14, and God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. Now folks, think about that name. Here's the first name that God identifies himself to Israel, or at least Moses. The first name that he identifies himself as, he says, tell him that I am has sent you. Those two small, simple words carry everything in the universe. God is whatever he has to be. He will do whatever he needs to do. He is the limitless, all-powerful God who will carry out his word and complete that which he has sent his word to accomplish. And God said, moreover unto Moses, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me unto you. This is my name forever. I'll always be I am. He never, he never becomes I was. This is my name forever and this is my memorial unto all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. Second time, God tells Moses who lives in the land that he's sending him to. And they shall hearken unto thy voice, and thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt. And you shall say unto him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now let us go, we beseech thee, three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof, and after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall come to pass that when you go, you shall not go empty. But every woman shall borrow of her neighbor and those that sojourneth in her house, jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment, and you shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and you shall spoil the Egyptians. Folks, I want you to realize God gave Moses an overview of how this whole plan is going to take place. He shows him up front. These are the results. This is how it's going to work. Now, let's read a little bit further when the Bible talks about, well, let's just go to chapter 4. I don't want to read everything about the story, but a couple of things I want to make a point about. Chapter 4, verse 1. And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice. For they will say, The Lord has not appeared unto thee. And the Lord said unto him, What is that in thine hand? And he said, A rod. And he said, Cast it to the ground. And he cast it onto the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. And the Lord said unto Moses, Put forth thine hand and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared unto thee. Now, let's talk about this for a minute. This is one thing that um, uh, that the Lord has really been impressing upon me. He's trying to get something over to me, and I haven't gotten it yet. But there are many, many times throughout the scriptures that the Bible talks about God changing matter. This rod, which is a stick that Moses had in his hand, it's made up of wood uh, wood molecules. And when he throws it down on the ground, it turns into a snake. God turned wood molecules into snake molecules. And he doesn't huff and puff. He doesn't exert any kind of special effort. And one of the things that I think the Lord is trying to get across to me, one of the things I'm impressed with about these things, is how easy it is for God to change the physical realm. He doesn't have any problem with that whatsoever. Now the the plagues begin to take place and, uh, and certain of these plagues take place because of Moses with his rod and taking his rod or his staff and hitting the ground or doing things like that. For example, the first plague that takes place is when Moses takes his staff and hits the Nile River and the Nile River turns into blood. And it wasn't just the Nile that turned into blood, all the water in Egypt turned into blood. If people had pitchers of water in their houses, those pitchers of water became pitchers of blood. It was blood throughout all the land. There was no water available throughout the land. Well, what does God do? He changes water molecules into blood molecules. And he does it like it's a game. Another one of the plagues that the Bible tells us about, it's the third or the fourth one, I'm not sure which But where Moses took his rod and he, or actually, if I remember correctly, God tells Moses to tell Aaron to strike the dust of the earth with his staff. And the dust molecules or particles turn into lice. Now, folks, lice are living things. They're gross. They're nuisances. But they're living beings. God made dust. Dead molecules, whatever dust mo- molecules or dust particles are made out of. He made dead particles into living particles. And he did it throughout the whole land of Egypt in a moment of time, faster than you can snap your fingers. Now, I think this has some, uh, some bearing in the New Testament as well. The first miracle that Jesus performed, remember, was turning the water into wine in, at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. Remember? John identifies specifically that this was the beginning of miracles. That means it was the first one. So here's the great I am, beginning his earthly ministry after having laid aside his heavenly power and glory. And he shows that God's still in the molecule changing business. Now, folks, if God can change dust into, into a living creepy bit bug. Like lice, then we would have to assume that he could take dust particles and change it into anything else. He could have made elephants out of dust particles, couldn't he? There's something about this. If God can do things like this, could he not take diseased cells and make them healthy cells? How big a problem would that be for God? doesn't seem like it would be any problem whatsoever, does it? So you remember the story, at least parts of the story I'm sure, how that Moses goes before Pharaoh and one plague after the other and each one of these plagues is an attack on one of the gods of Egypt. And just as God said, remember this is all part of the word of wisdom that God gave Moses. He revealed his plan to them, or to him, for him to reveal it to Israel. So now you've got the word of wisdom taking place along with some of these other miracles. Now, I'm not exactly sure what all is taking place or how we identify these, uh, each one of these miracles. Because when you get to the place where you start making life out of something that was dead, That seems to me that that's not just a matter of working of miracles. That would have to be special faith, wouldn't it? How do you get faith? Now, don't get me wrong. Faith works the same in every area. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. But does hearing God's plan about delivering Egypt or delivering Israel from Egypt, is just the knowledge of his plan sufficient faith? To turn dead things into living things? To change wood molecules into snake molecules? Now, I'm sure there's somebody with a scientific background that could take apart the way that I'm saying these things, but I'm really trying to communicate rather than be techni- te- technically correct, even if I know what the technically correct term is, which I probably don't. But do you understand what I'm saying? So Moses strikes the Nile River and it turns into blood. These are things that really happen, folks. These aren't fairy tales. These are real-time events that took place, not in our time. But they did take place. Now, there were some miracles, like, for example, the frogs. I think the frogs were the second miracle or the second plague that took place. That wasn't a result of God or Moses smiting the ground or anything like that. That was just the word of the Lord coming to pass. Same thing with the plague of hail and fire. Moses just lifted up his hands to the heavens and the hail mixed with fire came down. Now I want you to look look with me to another story. We could we could stick with Moses and talk about the things that he did at the hand of God or by the hand of God, or really we probably should say that God did by the hand of Moses. Because Moses as a human being, as a man is the one that has authority on the earth. God just shows him how they will work with him and partner up with it. So it's really Moses that's bringing these things to pass God's just using his power as he directs Moses in what to do. But turn with me over to 1 Kings. Let's look at the story of Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah comes on the scene in the previous chapter. We don't know anything about him other than he's a Tishbite. I'm not even sure we know what that is. We assume that it's a, a tribe of people, but we don't know for sure. So Elijah the Tishbite, Tishbite shows up and says before Ahab, the wicked king of Israel, and his wife Jezebel, that it's not going to rain in Israel again until I say so. Then God leads him into the wilderness. He shows him how he'll sustain him first by the brook, where the ravens bring him flesh and bread in the morning, and flesh and bread again in the evening. Then after the brook dries up, God sends him to a certain place where there was a widow woman that sustained him. Remember, she just had a handful of meal and a few drops of oil in the cruise, the container. But the meal kept multiplying day after day after day along with the oil that never ran out. Now it's God's plan for Ahab to see his power, to see God's power, even over his wickedness. So verse 1, 1 Kings chapter 18 verse 1, and it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab, and there was a sore famine in Samaria. I'll skip down through some of this for the sake of time. Elijah tells Obadiah to go tell Ahab, King Ahab, where he is. Obadiah doesn't trust him, but... Uh, to be there when he comes back, because if that were the case, then Ahab would kill Obadiah. But Elijah gives him his promise, and when Ahab finally comes, Ahab complains and accuses Elijah of being the one that's troubling Israel. But Elijah says, You're the one through your wickedness that is bringing this on Israel. Verse 19. Now therefore send, this is Elijah telling, talking to Ahab. Now therefore send and gather unto me all Israel unto Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal 450 and the prophets of the groves 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto the people and said, how long halt ye between two opinions? How long is it going to be before you make up your mind who's God? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. Now, folks, let me stop here a minute to make a comment. We know the story. We know how it turns out. We know know the end. We've read the story, so we know the end all the way through. But I want you to realize every unsaved person is in this same place that Elijah says that Israel is at. Sometimes they think that God might be God, especially if God's working on their heart, trying to draw them in. One of the works of the Holy Ghost is to bring conviction, and conviction is not a bad thing. Conviction is just information and direction from God on how to make your life what God wants it to be. So the people are doing this, acting this out in a a big way, very visible way. They're offering sacrifices unto Baal and sometimes they're offering sacrifices unto God too. This is after the law of Moses has been given. But as I said before, if God's just one of the gods that you're serving or worshiping or trying to serve, it doesn't count because he demands to be the only one. So Elijah came to the people and said, how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answers by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves and dress this first, for you are many, and call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under it. Then they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered, and they leaped upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them. This is after they've been trying for six hours now. And Elijah mocked him and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he's talking, or he's pursuing, or he's in a journey or peradventure, he sleeps and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets. Folks serving the devil make you do crazy things. Till the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass when midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that there was neither voice, nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, in saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bullock in pieces, And laid him on the wood and said, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Now remember there's been a three or three and a half year famine. So this amount of water that Elijah commands them to to douse everything with, that's precious water. The only reason it's probably there is because it's there to serve the king in case he gets thirsty. Nobody would have cared about the people, I'm sure. So Elijah said, do it again the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, do it the third time. And they did it the third time. So that's four barrels three times, 12 barrels of water. And the water ran down about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel. And that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, all, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Elijah, uh, by his own hand, it seems, killed the 450 prophets of Baal. Now, let me ask you this. We know what his prayer is. He says, Show them, Father, that you are Lord God in Israel, that I'm your servant, and that I've done all these things at your word. Three simple things about his prayer. But the last one particularly I want you to take notice of. That I've done all these things at your word. If you go back to verse 1. Where it says the Lord appeared unto Elijah. He didn't tell him any of this stuff. He just says you'll show yourself to Ahab. So the word of wisdom that comes to Elijah. Is to show himself to Ahab. Now there's two possibilities. Either. God showed Elijah and gave him instruction about what to do on top of Mount Carmel and it's just not recorded for us. Or it's information that came to him in some other way as the day progressed. Now either way it doesn't matter to me one way or the other. But remember faith is the way that you take hold of anything and everything that God does. So this has to be a matter of faith. Elijah says so. He says, Show him that I've done this at your word. But whose faith is he using? Is he using his own faith? It seems to me that to be that would be unlikely because the Bible does not tell us that God told him all these steps specifically to take. Now, if verse 1 had said, The Lord appeared to Elijah and said, Go show yourself to Ahab and challenge the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel to a challenge of which God answers by fire, then I'm fine with that being his own faith. But do you remember after the fire fell? Maybe I should read this rather than just speak to it. Let me read it again. Verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench now folks if the fire had fallen just to to, uh, consume the sacrifice that was all that was necessary for God to win the contest but I want you to see what kind of fire this is this is the kind of fire that burns stone it vaporizes everything that there was now I've got a question for you where'd God get the fire? Is there fire in heaven that transcends the difference between the spiritual realm and the physical realm? Now don't worry, I'm not going to put you on the spot to make a judgment here because I don't have the answer either. But some way or another, God creates fire. I don't think the fire came from the spirit realm. I think something happened where God created the fire from the air itself Is necessary. But what a fire it was. It didn't just dry up the water and set the wood on fire so that the fire would uh, the wood burning fire would consume the, the, uh, the bullet this was a vaporizing fire but do you remember what happens next the Bible tells us that after Elijah killed the 400 prophet, 450 prophets of Baal doesn't say anything about the 400 but we have to assume the 400 prophets of the groves but we have to assume he didn't leave those alive either. I don't know why he would. But again, I wish the Bible gave us some information specifically about him, but it doesn't. But immediately after that, Jezebel hears about it and says, I'll do the same thing to Elijah by this time tomorrow. You remember what Elijah does? Now he's just stood before King Ahab and the 450 prophets of Baal and all of Israel, the prophets of the grove of well, and all of Israel. You can't get to a place where you take a bigger risk than he just did he's risked everything on some knowledge that he has of God's plan and purpose in this situation to answer by fire it's hard for me to think that he would have come up with the idea on his own to have the challenge where the God that answers by fire is the real God unless God had given him some information ahead of time Now, I'm not saying it couldn't happen that way, but it just seems to me to be unlikely, especially when part of his prayer is that I've done these things at your word. That indicates to me that some way or another, at some time or another, God told him what to do and what to expect. So he's just had this great contest, the greatest victory for Israel maybe ever. And at Jezebel's threat, Elijah begins running for his life. He runs up into the mountain, sits down, has a little pity party, said, oh, God, I'm the only one that's left. God brings a word of knowledge to him. A word of knowledge is divine revelation into certain facts or events in the mind of God. The word of knowledge is either either present or past tense, or sometimes it can be both. But it's never according to the future. There are things that have been done, things that exist, things that have taken place. That's the word of knowledge, whereas the word of wisdom shows forth God's plan for the future. So God gives him a word of knowledge and says that he's got 7,000 that have not bowed their knee to Baal. No way he could have known that except God give it to him by revelation. He says, as part of his complaint, he says, Lord, I'm the only one that's left. Just let me die. Well, if he really wanted to die, he could have stayed back where he was, and Jezebel had already threatened to do that by the end of the day. So he didn't want to die any more than we sometimes do when we say things like that to God. What's he afraid of? Seems to me that a guy that's just stood in front of King Ahab, who is even more powerful than his wife. She pretty much ran the show uh, from the stories that the Bible gives to us. But she certainly had no more power than Ahab, her husband, did. He was the king. So he's just stood before Ahab. He's called fire down from heaven. He's killed the 450 prophets of Baal and probably the 400 prophets of the groves too. And now he's running for his life. That sounds to me that like the faith that he was using during the contest w- with the prophets of Baal wasn't his own. That seems to indicate to me, and again, it's just, it's just a supposition. I can't prove it one way, and I don't think you can prove it the other way either. But he's certainly not operating the same faith and the same boldness that he did during the challenge, is he? Could that be because that was special faith or the gift of faith? A manifestation of the Holy Ghost called the gift of faith? And now when that lifts from him, he's left to his own faith. And that, would shall we say, that would certainly appear to be a different measure. A much smaller measure. Somebody defined the gift of faith I think it was Smith Wigglesworth that said it this way. I'm not sure about that. But somebody identified the gift of faith as when God honors man's word as his own. You know what's going to happen before the beginning. You know the end before the beginning. Well, again, we're back to some of the original questions. We've seen several examples of Revelation. We've seen discerning of spirits. We've seen word of wisdom. We've seen word of knowledge. We've seen either working of miracles and or the gift of faith in operation. But nowhere in the scripture are these things identified for what we know them to be now. Where did Paul get the titles for these things? now don't get me wrong I know the answer to it and the answer is pretty simple the Holy Ghost by revelation told him what these things were you can't find anywhere in the law of Moses you can't find anything in the prophets you can't find anything in the Old Testament where any of these manifestations are identified other than some general term called miracle and the Lord did this miracle the Lord did that miracle but the Holy Ghost is so intent in wanting us to be informed, wanting us to not be ignorant of things pertaining to Him, that He gave Paul the list of what things were and what they're what they're called. We know the same thing's not true for where Peter is concerned. The Bible says that uh, the church is founded on the the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, that the foundation of the church is made up of the apostles and the prophets. Well, you've got Peter and Paul that are both apostles. In fact, there are 22 people in the New Testament that are identified in, as apostles. A lot of people think that just means the 12 plus Paul or the 11 plus Paul, I guess. But there are 22 people in the New Testament that are identified as apostles. There are a lot of people that are identified as prophets. Peter and Paul were both, would have to be apostles and prophets. But the letters that we have from Peter don't give us any kind of the information or the revelation about the Holy Ghost and the foundation of the church and righteousness and, and so forth, all the great doctrines that we have record of, the doctrine of the exchange or reconciliation that Paul tells us about in both Romans and 1 Corinthians. Peter gave us no, none of that kind of information. Paul seems to be taught of these things, taught these things of the Holy Ghost himself. I'm humbled by the fact that Peter was honest enough and humble enough to refer to some of Paul's letters and say that they're difficult to understand. Well, the letters that he's writing about or referring to have to be where some of the doctrines are concerned, talking about the ministry of exchange and reconciliation and some of the other things that we've already mentioned. So it's obvious that God didn't deal with Peter in the same way that he did with Paul when it came to doctrine, or church doctrine. You remember what Paul said? I think he said it to the Romans. He said, the whole earth will be judged by my gospel. Paul understood his role. He understood that he was the one that God revealed by the Holy Ghost, these things. The vision that he talks about, how that he was caught up into the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, you couldn't tell. The fact that he couldn't tell tells me two things. One was he was alone when it happened because if somebody else had been there, he could have simply asked them, did I go anywhere? Was it just my spirit that was lifted up into heaven or did my body go too? But the second thing and the most important thing to me, is that Paul identified that he heard things, heard and saw things that was not lawful to utter? King James says. A better translation was that are not easily identified or comprehended. In other words, he didn't have the words to say what he saw. He didn't have the words, the vocabulary to describe what he saw. And Paul's vocabulary is pretty big, folks. Remember, he spoke Hebrew and and, um, Greek, too. He was an extremely learned and educated man. And that education paid off because he was educated in the Old Testament truth. So when the Lord would reveal to him and show him about how the pattern of the Old Testament was fulfilled by Jesus' work, he understood the concepts perfectly. And those are the things I assume that Peter is talking about are hard to understand, hard to comprehend. And so Paul tries to bring the church knowledge. I know I've said this before, but I'm amazed at the letters that Paul wrote. I'm amazed, for example, the letter he wrote to the Romans. There is no way he would have written the same thing to the Romans that he did write to them if he had been to Rome and had a hand in starting those churches. His letter to the Romans would have been something perhaps in line with the letter he sent to the first, the first letter that he sent to the Corinthians. Actually, there were four letters he wrote to the church at Corinth. We've got two of the four. But there's no way he would have written the things that he did to the Romans if he had been there himself to teach them. But the fact that he couldn't get to Rome, and he said himself, I've tried several times to get to you, but but Satan has hindered me. And the very fact that he didn't go to Rome, he didn't have a a hand in the founding of that church. He then sends them a letter that... Are the the foundational truths and the doctrines that he would have taught them if he had been there in the flesh to start those churches? And so, what do we have? We have a record of what the Holy Ghost intended for the church to be founded upon. You can't find anything that Paul ever said concerning the subject of righteousness. And the fact that we've been made righteous. He says some things to the Corinthians about it. But the foundation that he uses and he lays in his letters to the Romans is unlike anything that he sent to any of the the other churches. Why is that? Because those are things that he taught to found those churches when he was there. He didn't feel the need to tell them. He might remind them a little bit of, of the things that he taught them. But he didn't feel the need to write the doctrine down for them since they've heard it once before. so we see God's plan and his purpose being carried out even in things that men may have thought were hindrances thank God for the Holy Ghost you know how you get the Holy Ghost to manifest himself? The Bible says God confirms his word with signs following. It's not just by praying for the Holy Ghost to move that it operates. Prayer is good. Even fasting is good on certain occasions and in certain ways. But that's not how you get the Holy Ghost to manifest himself. You get the Holy Ghost to manifest himself by teaching on him manifesting himself because that's when he begins to confirm the word that's been taught folks I'm determined we're going to see a manifestation of the Holy Ghost that's certainly going to be greater than anything I've ever witnessed can't speak for you but that's the way it's going to be because God always confirms his word and he confirms his word with signs following When you preach on healing, healing power flows. When you preach on the manifestation of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit manifests Himself. There may be things we don't know. I'm sure that Paul, with all the knowledge he had, would be the first to admit that he didn't know it all himself. That's what he wrote to the church. Romans chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. If anybody thinks he knows anything, He didn't know anything like he ought to know it. I'm sure he lived by his own preaching. So we're going to have an opportunity to be be taught and schooled by the Holy Ghost himself. Is that okay with you? That is the way that it will be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the great Holy Spirit, the mighty one who manifests himself according to his will, not ours, but according to his will. Holy Spirit, we trust in you to fulfill the truth of the word and confirm the word that's been taught with signs following. We expect, therefore, Holy Spirit, for revelation gifts to be in operation, discerning of spirits, the word of wisdom and word of knowledge, We expect the power gifts to be in manifestation, working of miracles, gifts of healings, and special faith. And we expect utterance gifts of the Spirit to be in manifestation prophecy, diverse kinds of tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Lord, have your way as the head of the church. Have your way in us. We yield ourselves to you, Holy Spirit. We trust you to show forth the plan and the purpose of our Father and, in, and to empower us or make us aware of the power that you've placed in us to accomplish this plan and purpose. We count on you, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Folks, the Holy Spirit's here. There's that mist that's hanging just above your head. Whatever you need, just reach up and take hold of it. Thank you, blessed Holy Spirit. Blessed Holy Spirit, the very power of God himself. Thank you for indwelling us, Holy Spirit, and as such for quickening our mortal bodies. Jesus, we magnify you. And we thank you that everything the Holy Ghost does in this place and in these people, that it will exalt the name that's above every other name. We bless you, Lord Jesus. We bless you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. Sometimes when the Holy Ghost manifests himself, it's, it's with or accompanies an excitement. Other times, a, a quietness and a peace. There's a scripture in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, that says, Be still and know that I'm God. So many times when the Holy Ghost does manifest Himself, it will bring a stillness and a calm, a quietness, a supernatural quietness, not just a desire on the parts of the people for us to stay quiet, but a quietness that's of God Himself. Bless you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. well say it with me thank God for the Holy Ghost Ghost. hallelujah it's at times like this you can get direction from God if you'll reach out with your spiritual hand not just with your physical hand but reach out from the inside of you to take hold of what the Holy Ghost has. He'll give you direction. He'll show you which way to go. Hallelujah. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let's all stand. We could keep this going as long as we show reverence to the Holy Ghost we don't have to end it here we could keep it going as long as the people maintain an attitude of respect once people start moving around and gathering up the things and that type of thing then it will lift brother Hagin used to talk about how that many times when the Holy Ghost would manifest himself in his services people would get antsy and start moving and heading for the exits and it would grieve the Holy Ghost and he said it would be like a bird flying off of his shoulder when the anointing of God just left the reverence and the attention we give to the Holy Ghost is everything folks we can say all day long that we want him to manifest but if we don't respect him and reverence him when he does then he'll stop But we won't do that, will we? We will reverence the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you have our word. We will reverence you in every respect. And so we say that you are welcome here. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, if you want to stay, stay. If you want to go, go. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, this will conclude our service. You can do what you want to.